Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John F.J. at OffbeatOregon.com with the daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. And it's Friday, which means this is going to be a brand new show, which has just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Reruns are for Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays. Fridays are for new stuff. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on June 23rd of 2019 under the headline Hold-Up Session featured a big drunken house party. Here we go. At the time of this writing, the Oregon legislature is stuck, unable to do anything. A group of lawmakers has gone off to Idaho for the express purpose of denying the legislature's leaders a quorum. At the time of this recording, everyone is all back together again, and the majority party is talking about making it so that a quorum isn't necessary to conduct state business. Really bad idea, that, but I don't want to get into politics. Um, Moving right along, this is not the first time this tactic has been used in Oregon. Nor is it the most dramatic. Things will have to get much, much more lively before the current situation will be able to hold a candle to the legendary hold-up session of 1896-97. The hold-up session involved several dozen state house members, a large assortment of alcoholic beverages, and, if the stories of those unfortunate enough not to be invited can be believed, an even larger assortment of dancing girls and prostitutes. It had its roots in political corruption, of course. This was, after all, the 1890s. In this particular election, Jonathan Bourne Jr., the man who was the closest Portland ever got to a boss tweed, had made his big play to carry his political career to the next level. With the help of some of his more morally flexible associates in Portland, he got himself elected to the State House of Representatives. The plan now was that his friend and political ally, John H. Mitchell, whose real name was John M. Hipple, but that's another story, would help pull the necessary strings and get him elected Speaker of the House. And from that position, Bourne would help get Mitchell re-elected, or reappointed rather, to his seat in the U.S. Senate. Because, and I say appointed because this was, of course, back before senators were directly elected by the people. In 1896, they were still appointed by state legislatures. And that meant that a wealthy person or company could almost literally purchase a senator's seat for him by simply bribing a couple dozen people. And that is exactly what Mitchell's friends and former employers at the Southern Pacific Railroad had done in 1896. They had given Jonathan Bourne $225,000 in cash with which to do the job for them. Accordingly, he had trotted around from colleague to colleague, handing over stacks of cash and receiving, in return, signed pledges to support Mitchell for U.S. Senate. The main reason Bourne was injecting himself so deeply into state politics in the first place was to help the free silver movement, This debate, whether to stick with the gold standard for U.S. currency or add silver to it in order to expand the money supply, was one of the hottest political topics of the day and had split the Oregon Republican Party in half. The conservative party establishment was committed to gold. The insurgent populist wing of the party was just as dogmatic about adding in silver. Bourne had extensive investments in silver mines in eastern Oregon and Idaho, so he had both economic and political reasons to be a silver man. He was so committed to the cause that he broke party ranks and supported William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic Party's presidential candidate, in 1896. 
Bourne's play for power was going right on schedule, until he started hearing little whispers that there was a little Benedict Arnold action going on inside his leadership team. Specifically, the rumor was that Mitchell, as soon as he was safely reappointed with the help of Bourne and his cronies, planned to renounce the movement and throw in his lot with the gold crowd. Bourne was not the kind of fellow to sit on his hands and hope for the best when that kind of thing was in the air. He went straight to Mitchell and asked him about it, and this is how he described the ensuing conversation to friend and colleague Walter Pierce. I said to him, Senator, the report here in Portland is that when you're a re-elected senator in this upcoming legislature, you expect to go back to Washington and join Mark Hanna and the gold crowd going completely back on your silver friends. I don't believe a word of it. You won't go back on me. He hesitated. I said, out with it. Tell me the fact. One can picture Mitchell thinking this through. Bourne would learn the truth eventually anyway, he must have thought, and the fix was in. Bourne had secured enough signed pledges to guarantee Mitchell's reappointment. There would be nothing Bourne could do but make the best of it. Plus, he was still going to be Speaker of the House. Maybe that would mollify him a bit. So, the senator said, that is what I'm going to do, Jonathan. Elder statesman Mitchell must have been a little bit taken aback by Bourne's response to this. Quote, I looked him straight in the face and I said, you are not going to be elected by this legislative body that meets next January, Bourne recalled. The senator replied, Jonathan, you can't stop me. You took the pledges from the men who were candidates when you gave them the money, and you took those pledges to the Southern Pacific Railroad, which put up the $225,000 that you distributed among candidates for the legislature. Those pledges have been signed. They are locked up in the Southern Pacific Railroad's safe. You can't help it. I will be elected. I don't know how it is going to be prevented, but you are not going to be elected, I said. Well, that had been easy enough to say, but it wasn't at all clear how Bourne was going to be able to follow through on this threat, if at all. Odd as it sounds to the modern ear, the politicians whom he had bribed on Mitchell's behalf considered the pledges they'd signed in exchange for the cash to be their word of honor as gentlemen. They wouldn't go back on them, even after learning they'd been double-crossed. Well, okay then. What if the subject never came up? When the legislature convened, could it be prevented from bringing Mitchell's appointment to a vote? As Bourne knew, if the state legislature never actually voted one way or the other on Mitchell's appointment, the nomination would fall to the governor, and the governor, William P. Lord, was one of Bourne's friends, and a friend of Silver. A few days later, a somewhat curious article appeared in the Oregonian, which, like everyone else in the state, still thought that the Bourne-Mitchell alliance was rock-solid. Mr. Bourne's fight, the top headline shouted, followed by two subheadlines. Senator Mitchell will help him to be speaker. And, being assured of desired support, he renews his campaign with great energy. Here's the article. Salem. The engagement by Mr. Jonathan Bourne of 19 rooms in the Eldridge Block, Salem, as well as the lease of the handsome Keller House on State Street, has created uncommon interest in political circles in this city. The article begins. It would appear that he is entering upon the fight with a degree of ostentation unusual in speakership contests, and it is not easy to see on the surface why quarters so extensive should have been engaged. The real reason, probably, is the Eldridge Block will be used during the season as supplementary Mitchell headquarters. One imagines Mitchell reading this article with mounting anxiety. What, he must have wondered, could that rascally Jonathan Bourne be scheming at? Meanwhile, Bourne was putting a few other pieces in place. The president of the Senate, Joseph Simon, was a solid silver man and could be depended on, but he needed a good ally in the House. So Bourne reached across the aisle and connected with an earnest populist party reformer named William Uren, 
who must have been very surprised to hear from him. Although both favored Silver, the two of them had not been allies prior to this. Uren was happy to help defeat Benedict Arnold Mitchell, and the two of them made some plans for Uren to implement some parliamentary delaying tactics while Bourne deployed the main thrust of his audacious plan, a plan to literally get the 1897 legislative session canceled. Remember those mysterious 19 rooms in the Eldridge block? They were about to become the scene of probably the most magnificent and longest-lasting house party in the history of the state of Oregon. Quote, I hired the best chef in the state of Oregon, Bourne recalled. Sent him up to Salem to fix up apartments in the Eldridge block, things to eat and drink and entertainment. I said to the chef, I pay all expenses. I want to take care of all my friends in the lower house who signed pledges with me, the Friends of Silver. The whole undertaking cost Bourne $80,000. It lasted for 40 days and 40 nights in an ironic and presumably unintentional echo of the account of Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness. And by the time it was over, the Eldridge Block had some colorful new nicknames. Bourne's harem was one. The den of prostitution and evil was another. It would appear that when Bourne mentioned entertainment, he wasn't just talking about checkers and scrabble. Well, a day or so later, when the State House of Representatives tried to convene for the opening day of the session, all Bourne's friends of silver were several blocks away, gulping down scotch and enjoying the company of dancing girls and other friendly ladies. And as Bourne had planned, there were not enough legislators left to form a quorum. Mitchell's supporters organized a rump session and tried to elect him. Wren got on the record, pointing out that their vote had no legal weight. The Oregonians' editorial writers roared with baffled fury. Inauguration day approached, and still nothing was coming out of the State House, on Mitchell's appointment or on any other topic. Finally, the State Senate announced that it was giving up and canceling its session, and Governor Lord announced he was appointing Henry Corbett to Mitchell's Senate seat. Bourne had won. Corbett was delighted. He'd been a senator before. It was he who Mitchell had defeated way back in 1873 when he first got appointed as senator. And Corbett had long cherished hopes of getting back. But when he arrived in D.C., Southern Pacific pulled some strings and the Senate refused to seat him. For the next two years, Oregon had just one U.S. senator. As for Mitchell, he had to sit the whole dance out. He was returned to the Senate again with Southern Pacific's help in 1900. He was still in office when he died of a dental abscess in 1905. As a side note, Bourne and Uren must have liked working together because a few years later, the two of them became the founding fathers of the Oregon Initiative and Referendum System. Bourne himself, in 1906, was the first Oregon senator elected by popular vote. Key sources in this story included works by Walter Pierce and the Portland Oregonian Archives from January to February 1897. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I do hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat Oregon History episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m., sometimes during the summer especially, a little bit more sporadically than that, but always there's one for every weekday. In any case, it won't be long before the next episode is up on your device and ready for you to queue up, so until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.